Okay, um, well welcome to this week's uh, episode of Tree Lady Talks and we're speaking to somebody this week who I wish we'd have actually made contact with a little while ago. So we're speaking to Robert Somerville and he used a rather marvellous idea of using volunteers to build a barn. Yes, <laughs> if only we knew. If only we knew, and we have had a chat afterwards actually about um, getting involved in building a barn for us when we go to our next house, um, but at the moment um, we're, we're still waiting for this one to be finished. If you're feeling rotten, maybe you've forgotten to listen to a tree lady talk. So what does Robert actually do? Is he an, he's an architect, isn't he? Robert Somerville is an architect and an engineer and works with local woodland owners and foresters to source local elm timber and then build and raise a timber frame by hand. And he's written this really interesting book called The Barn Club and it's an inspiring tale of craft, nature, landscape and community. I've got a little bit of, uh, I've, been, I've taken up banjo, funny enough, and uh, I'm going to play a bit uh, just to introduce this, so here we go. a little bit about yourself and your background please well i am a lifelong carpenter i've i've loved being in the countryside being amongst woods and i grew up on a farm where when trees fell over um I, by the time i was 18 i got my first chainsaw and then a chainsaw mill so i started being able to use the timber um realizing you know a tree like walnut and discovering just how beautiful the, the timber is inside um, my career has always involved wood. I've, I spend now about half my life or a third of my life as a, as a designer for houses, architectural designer. Um, but I try and spend half of my life outside, do a bit of milling and obviously timber framing. It makes for a good life, doesn't it, to have the technical work and creative work inside but spending half of your time outside, in your case, working with the timber, in my case, looking at the trees. And uh, that, that's very much like my professional life as well, albeit at a different end of the scale. It is kind of a dream, really, because I know so many people, particularly in architecture, end up you know, doing 10, 12-hour days. But I try and just try desperately to keep things in balance. Really, a lot of the work that I do outside is nowhere nearly as, as profitable. So... As a, as a carpenter, but that, that's not really the point. It's just um, trying to get a balance in life, which I think, and being outside, which is just great, like you say. Regular listeners will know that we have video bites, and I really recommend that people listen to this podcast, hop over to our YouTube channel, Sharon Hose Good Associates, because you're sitting in the most beautiful elm barn. Tell us a little bit about the history of barn raising, because the first I heard of it, was watching a film called Witness, which goodness knows is how many decades old, where they raise a barn. But of course, this is a, a British tradition as well. So, I mean, it's so rare to raise a barn by hand. The one I'm sitting in is an elm barn, the first elm barn I did, and it's on our own small hole. It took a while to work out how to do it because there's nobody alive you can go to who was told by their father or grandfather how to do it. So I had to do quite a lot of investigation to, to really work out how it was done, how it was done safely, and how could it be done by hand. And that probably was last done in Hertfordshire, maybe 150, 200 years ago. So it really is reviving something that has, has you know, sort of been consigned to history. But when we did it, we were overwhelmed by the enjoyment of it. And the film Witness, you know, you... If you remember it, there's, it's quite a thing, really. There's a lot of food and there's a party at the end and everybody mucks in. It's a real community thing. We're here today primarily to talk about your book, The Barn Club, which is out now. There is an incredible film on your website where it's going to be a link on our website to it. So I highly recommend everybody watches a film and I can see the community involvement, which is really at the hub of this. But also, as you say... There are so many lost countryside skills, aren't there? Yeah. That aren't written down. Yeah. I mean, that if you go back, if you think back 200 years, that's in the countryside, that's sort of before the Industrial Revolution. So everything was done by hand. And so for, for the barn I'm sitting in, again, this, this was done using hand tools and using plumb bob scribing and cutting mortise and tenons and the 
joints are all held together with oak pegs. Actually, at the background, you can see the little dots in that mid Yes. That's the, the heads of all the pointed ends of the pegs. Yeah, I feel, I've learned a lot about that now. And it's, it's all so beautifully illustrated in your book, all hand-drawn. Yeah, and photographs as well. So the, the book is really, it has got an introduction to plumb bob scribing and how to cut a basic mortise and tenon. Um, I mean, in this barn, we're, we're working to maybe half a millimetre. So it's all very accurately done, but with hand tools. Those are the sort of tools, um, not very many of them, tools you could just put in a bag, really. Not like today when, you know, white vans are absolutely stuffed with, with all sorts of power tools, that carp- working carpenters. And just the simplicity of it. What amazed me is how easily everybody who comes along to, as a volunteer or comes on a course, and you know, a beginner course, how quickly they pick up those skills. It's almost, it is really striking how readily people can just pick up everybody of all ages with no experience in carpentry, men and women, it makes no difference. You can see that if it was back in the day, a village activity, it needed to be done in a way that everybody could could do it, not just one or two people. Is there something perhaps in our DNA about touching wood, about working with hand tools that we've been doing as a species for thousands of years that maybe it's just in some deep part of our brain and it just makes us feel good i do write about what it's what it feels like this is this is what i'm saying i believe that when we think of making something and we set about to gather the materials and the wherewithal to do it we stand at a fork in the road on one side we see a well-trodden path of power tools and technology and on the other a path of handwork far less travelled by in our day and age. And by taking the second path, as we did to make the Kali barn, a different world opens up. And further along this less well-trodden path, a sort of intimacy grows, which is felt through the close partnership of hand tools, our hands, and the material itself. And sometimes when you're working, the distinctions and boundaries between these three things break down and you, you lose all sense of which is guiding and which is following, something is simply appearing through itself. And that this kind of level of surrender to the process has such an elegance and a grace. And uh, so that a craft is much more than a hobby or a trade, but is a way of giving life to things. That's really beautiful. And I wonder why Elm? When I moved here from, I lived in the southwest of England for uh, uh, most of my working life, I suppose. And I moved here about uh, 15 years ago. And I noticed, um, well, really surprised that there were all these mature elm trees around um, that I hadn't seen before. And these, not just trees, but occasionally a a whole wood of elm, um, which amazed me. And then uh, one one day a friend showed me around a, a barn that they owned on their farm. It's uh, the barn that George Orwell used, the basis of his book, um, Animal Farm. And I said, do you realise this barn is made of elm, not oak? And they didn't realise that. And that really sort of piqued my curiosity, I suppose. And I looked round at other barns and realised there was a period of time around here in the 18th, 18th century, I think, particularly, where elm was used as a timber framing material rather than oak. Um, quite you know quite widely and in through Essex and uh, this this part of the country so I think it's really important when we're trying to rediscover a craft that we in the first case try and follow the footsteps of the people who did it in the first place and then we can learn from it and maybe extend it or develop it as we wish but the first place to start is just to see how they did it and see what you can learn so I thought, well, it's going to have to be elm. And elm wood's got, uh, it's very good when it's wet and it's very good when it's very dry. It's not so good in between. That's right. But in those two states, it resists sort of fungal attack and decay. Damp elm is no good. When it really dries out and it's properly seasons from the green, it's very strong, isn't it? It's a beautiful honey colour. Yes, yes, a beautiful colour. It's a different colour from, from oak. And you're right. You're absolutely right. So it's very important in you know in building an elm barn just to keep keep the rain off. So the roof's got to be kept in good repair, and it's it's on a brick plinth, so it's out of the damp um, coming from the ground. And you're you're right. We we work when the wood is green or when the timber's fresh, freshly 
freshly cut. Um, and in that state, it's, it's not cracked and it's, it, the sides, the milled sides are, are flat. So it makes it good, very uh, straightforward for marking and, and cutting. And as it dries, it just gets stronger and stronger and tougher and tougher. So when it's green, you can, you can even split it with an axe. But when it's dry, it's no chance. Yeah. It's so much tougher. It used to be used for um, chair seats as well, didn't it, yes. uh, years ago, because it is so hard. But um, this part of, so I, I live in northwest Essex, you're in Hertfordshire, and, and Cambridgeshire are sort of the last strongholds of some tall elms that have somehow dodged Dutch elm disease. Um, and it's a bit of a mystery, isn't there? There's a lot of hybridisation between different types of elm, between witch elm and English elm, and there's Huntingdon's elm and smooth-leaved elms. But I don't find it easy to quantify why there are some big, tall elms. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think it is. a. At the moment, it's a bit of a mystery. Yeah. Um, because you're absolutely right. There are I mean, I drive around and I'll see a little patch of elms that will be maybe, you know, a few really big trees, perhaps three foot across at the base. So that's a big tree and it's been around for well over 100 years. Um, so why is it there? Because in the hedges around, you see the normal site of fairly small elm trees that have died and are now skeletons. Um, so it's not as if the Dutch elm disease hasn't swept through that area. But there may be some, whether it's a field resistance or a genetic resistance for that particular hybrid in that particular village. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd love it if, if um, somebody would do some research and actually, you know, find the gene sequencing, or whatever it's called, to, to identify what gives particular elms resistance. Because if we can do that, then we can propagate and, and build up nurseries and start thinking about putting healthy elms back into the countryside which would be superb it would be superb i mean there are some disease resistant cultivars which are not the quite the same but there are some and i was speaking to tony kirkham who is the head um, a boriculturalist at kew gardens and he's been planting a lot of almost new horizon and of course in holland they plant many different type varieties of disease resistant elm but um, our actual typical elm form, yes, it would be really good to get the genetic information on that. Because for listeners who are too young to remember, I'm not, too young to remember our old elm landscapes, um, what happens now is, you know, elm will regenerate from the stump and it will grow up till it's about sort of 10 years old until the bark gets craggy enough for that beetle to come in, scolitis, scolitis, and bring in that fungus into underneath the bark, and there you go. So it's a never-ending cycle. Where did you get the elm trees from to make the balm? I generally go directly to the uh, people who own, or the person who owns the, the wood, um, because I've been unable to source elm through the standard you know, timber merchants or local sawmills, they'll just say, oh, no, you can't, you can't get it anymore. And we can import it from, I did once a couple of years ago, import some from, I think it was Croatia, of all places. We still have some large elms there and they were, the timber, there's enough of it to be imported. But I think at the end of the day, we, I believe, and I try always to use local trees. So looking around, finding woods or little groups of trees, maybe trees that are old that are just starting to, to go over, start to die off at, at the perimeters, or trees that dead even dead standing, um, that some of them will have had Dutch elm disease. There seems to be some trees that will grow maybe to, I don't know, about 400 millimeters across, um, breast height diameter, and then, and then they die. So these are way bigger than the normal height when Dutch elm disease comes through. So maybe they have a kind of partial resistance. I don't know. But um, there are tens of thousands of trees of that sort of size. And in fact, if you've got a tree that size, that you can do the timber framing with a tree even that small. Um, trees that only just make it to be large enough to be run to a conventional sawmill. Um, I, I can work with timbers that are 
maybe six inches diameter. Yeah, that surprised me and pleased me as well, because um, it's number one, one of the things you said earlier that I want to pick up on is the importance of using local timber. You know, obviously the carbon footprint is so much smaller and there's something very pleasing about something of local provenance. You know, when you are removing these trees, you're creating a clearing in the wood. And tell me what happened when you went back to the wood a few years later and saw where you'd removed these trees. Going back two years later, the brambles had grown over right across, which of course is very important because that starts to keep the deer away from nibbling at the regrowth. And there was a mixture of regrowth from the root suckers from the surrounding elm trees, the healthy elm trees that remained, and also from the stools, the stumps that we'd cut. One of them had re-sprouted and it was already 15 foot tall. All the energy in the root stock, wow, that's, that's fantastic. And so many of our small woodlands are in a poorer state because nobody is actively managing them and it needs to be this cycle of recoppicing and removal of some trees, creating glades. And, and so creating the barn enabled that woodland, that part of the woodland, to have more lighting and greater diversity. Yes, absolutely. And at the moment, I'm only using trees that are, you know, that are dead or are, are dying and a few smaller ones that are thinning, which will thin out around an, a, another tree, which can then grow on and really fill out, which is, as you all know, is an important part of woodland management. Um, rather than too many trees all tightly competing and then all never quite making big crowns because they're all got tiny, tiny heads on. Yeah, so that's all part of looking afterwards. And then, of course, all that carbon that's locked in that, that, those tree trunks um, gets put into a building like this. And, you know, there's no reason why this won't be here in 200 years' time. Uh, it's, so it's a carbon capture and storage using nature to do all the work, to do all the chemistry. <laughs> Hello, this is Tree Lady Talks, and I'm Sharon Durdent-Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent-Hollenby, and all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. I mainly work in construction. I'm always encouraging my clients to think about if they can't actually build out of wood, which they often can't, but to use the wood from trees that might be felled or, or trees from trees nearby as part of the landscape architecture or art or sculpture or the ecology is such an important thing. One of the lovely things about using the traditional type of construction which um, I mean you can see all different size bits of timber behind me and I found that was part of the revelation was when milling the elm trees I found that it could use so much of the tree because my cutting list had you know the lengths I needed and the different size sections of wood and I found that there was just hardly anything left over as waste and that's obviously no accident and the size of the timbers behind which I've copied from other barns it was was done for a reason they they didn't want to waste anything when they came to fell a tree and they could also use curves they could use bent bits when a lot of the elms in the wood it was a coppice previously but the elms had grown up I don't think they'd been managed at all but they being elms they were able to still produce big tall stems but some of them were curved where they'd come out from the copper stool and those curves are perfect for making arch braces um, and rising braces in a barn like this so it can accommodate timber that's you wouldn't probably want to run through a sawmill because you wouldn't get much much yield from a curving piece of wood plus of course you weaken it because you're cutting through the the line of the fibers so just by following the shape of the tree Again, it was producing, on balance, exactly the right shapes of timber that I needed. So it's it's incredibly efficient way of, of using local timber from woods that have been neglected that are going to produce perhaps misshapen trees or lengths of clear, clean wood of different lengths. And I suspect, you know, again, it wouldn't be an accident. They, they designed buildings or but they don't think they designed them I think they just kind of organically evolved um, over the centuries so that they could just go into their local woods use the trees they've got there of all different sizes and shapes and come up with this this uh, with this kind of building and that's talk about efficiency I think that's it's so pleasing and there's some fantastic illustrations of yours in the book just showing how efficient the use of the timber is and 
Um, it's not something I really knew a lot about and you explain it so clearly it's really stuck in my mind but one of the things also struck me is that the whole idea was to use hand tools yeah that that was um, kind of unintentional really I mean I didn't really set out building this barn in the first place to involve volunteers but um, a bunch of friends on the first day said can we come and help Um, and it was raining and it wasn't a bit of a grim day but um, Gordon uh, and Tony and Kieran came along and um, got to work with spades and w- whatever. And and they had a nice lunch, gave them, you know, teas, coffees, everything else. And they said, right, we'll be back next week. And they told their friends and they told their friends. And before I know it, you know, Barn Club had appeared. And uh, we had a good time. I mean, oh, because I was building this barn for myself, I wasn't working to a deadline. I wasn't working in a conventional construction site. And I realized everybody who came to help was definitely going to be working at their own pace because they weren't, like me, experienced um, carpenters necessarily. Yes. And also realized that we couldn't be using power tools. Far too dangerous. So power tools were out. I'd been on an amazing course by a a really good carpenter, timber frame carpenter called Joe Thompson, um, down at the Weald and Downland Living Museum. And uh, a few years before, I'd been on one of those courses. So I knew how to do the whole thing by hand, if you like. It gave me the confidence to take that on. And I could uh, could see that um, a little bit of training would be good. But basically, the hand tools allowed people to work safely. As they were volunteers, they were going to be working at their own pace anyway. And the whole atmosphere of the, the framing yard, completely different from a, from a conventional timber framing yard. You could hear what you, were, what you were doing, as opposed to just the noise, I mean, intense noise of, of power tools, of circular saws and so on. So, uh, so it was immediately friendly. It meant that people who would find those kind of working environments pretty brutal, to be honest, um, felt very, very comfortable. So um, it was fine to have youngsters come along and do stuff or women particularly who'd never seen themselves as being carpenters because they'd never liked the thought of, you know, using circular saws and all the rest of it, power tools, um, wasn't the issue. So uh, it was really it was really lovely to see that there were no obstacles to anybody being able to come along and, and join in. And I don't think I ever had to turn anyone away, which is extraordinary because these people would be people I'd never met before. Was it all through word of mouth or did you advertise the barn club? Yeah, it was word of mouth. Because this sort of thing is obviously very rare, there are a few other people um, who who do this sort of thing in other places in the country. So it's not as if it's completely unique, but it's so unusual. People loved it. So Robert, tell us about the barn that features in your book. How big was it and what was the base made of? Right. Um, well, the Carly Barn is it's called the Carly Barn because it was made for Esther and Bruce Carly. And their, their barn is about 13 metres long, I should think, five and a half metres wide. And uh, most of it's single storey, although it's got a big sort of open vaulted roof. Um, in the main space but uh, because it's on a slight slope it's two stories at, at, at the lower end which is quite nice so it's got a big main space and then a room below and a room above that kind of a loft space above that um, and it's all built on a on a brick plinth all the way around made with lime mortar and you know reclaimed bricks so it's all kind of quite traditional and in fact the volunteers joined in with the brickwork they loved it and uh, the photographs I can see, the bricks just look really handmade and in keeping with the setting. I guess a lime mortar, does it allow the building to slightly flex? Yes, that's right. It's it's not nearly so rigid as, as cement, modern cement mortars. And for secondhand bricks, it's vital to use lime because the bricks themselves are softer. And the last thing you want is is for the mortar to stay rigid and the bricks to crack. It's much better if the mortar yields a little bit. As you say, lime is a bit softer and the bricks don't crack. So, And it also allows moisture to, to evaporate away from the brickwork, which, um, which, yeah, is, which helps keep, the, keep the, the sole plate, as it's known, the first piece of timber resting on top of the plinth is the sole plate. So that helps just keep everything dry. 
I'm a, bit, I'm a real nerd. What was the soil type and did you need to put in deep foundations? Well, that's interesting because the barn that I'm in now has got no foundations at all. Literally, I took the topsoil off and laid the bricks on that because that's how it used to be. And that was on clay. On clay. But it's on undisturbed ground and it does flex because we've got a whole line of very mature oak trees very nearby. So it, it kind of um, sinks a bit in the summer and rises in the winter, does it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So there's all that heave going on. Interesting. But it seems there's, it's absolutely fine. There's no cracks in any of the brickwork or anything. So it's absolutely, that's right. Any movement is just yeah. kind of taken up with, with the lime. And there's no gutters. So in the winter, it gets properly saturated uh, around the edge of the building. And then the other one, the Carly Barn, it had to have an archaeologist had to be present when we dug out the foundations because I knew it was built up ground and that's not so good to just lay bricks on. There'll be too much movement. So um, we kept on digging down until we found the undisturbed ground and the archaeologist was there to see if there was, because they suspected a medieval village on that site. Talking about carbon footprints, this bit wasn't so good. They ended up having to go down with a digger about six foot to find hard subsoil. And it, there it's, it's, quite, it's quite sandy, really. I suppose the soil. So rather than tr- ask anybody to go down there and start doing block work or anything at that depth, we just poured concrete in. So it's, it's not so good. So that probably wiped out all the benefit of capturing carbon in the timber. Well, you know, needs must. So Bruce and Esther Carley, did they come to you and ask you to build a barn? How did it all start? They'd actually volunteered towards the end of building my barn here. Um, and they'd got a small holding in the village nearby and they wanted a barn there. So they came to me as a proposition, can I design and build a barn for them? So it was a commercial project. It was a timber framing project. And I thought the fact that they'd been involved and enjoyed the, the volunteer aspect of it. So I put it to them, well, I can do it as a project and this is roughly what it's going to cost and this is roughly what, how long it will take. Um, and they agreed to do, have it as a volunteer project. Um, but because of the volunteer aspect, obviously the labour costs are going to also reduce. And so you, what you lose on length of time spent, you gain on um, the labour. But what's extraordinary for the volunteers, they weren't in the least bit concerned or didn't, didn't change anything. The fact that it was for a private owners, you know, it wasn't like doing it for a charity or, I don't know, some communal space, which amazed me really. Uh, it seemed to break all the rules because in my, all my business life, I'd always thought you had to pay people to do things. And of course, with volunteers, there's no economic contract. I mean, I was leading the project and I was helping helping make it all make it happen. But I had to make sure that every time they came, it, we, we, it would be uh, satisfying, it would be enjoyable, it would be safe, everybody could be helped. So they go away feeling good about what they've done. And Perhaps as an employer, you ought to be doing that anyway. But if you're working with volunteers or only they're out of the goodness of their hearts, you just have to completely respect the fact that they're there and they're going to do things at their own speed. And to be honest, at the end of the day, I was always amazed by how much we'd achieved. You know, it was a real heartwarming thing, working with people who are just coming out of goodwill. It's very unusual today, but particularly in construction, but it does change everything. What did you learn from the volunteers? Did they teach you anything? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Well, one thing, I was amazed that everybody picked it up, the fact that everybody could, could run with it, um, that these weren't such sort of rarefied, specialist, traditional crafts. These were things that, like you said earlier on, it's almost like working with our hands and with simple tools is in our DNA. Um, that was a revelation. Um, I enjoyed their company. It was great because there were people that I didn't select them, really. They selected themselves. What sort of backgrounds did they come from? Yeah, all sorts, really. I mean, some were definitely sort of retired, very successful professionals. Um, but there were also uh, youngsters right at the start of their, um, you know, their, their working lives. And some of them, like Greg Cumbers, who's from Essex as well, he's... He's gone on to form his own little timber framing business. Um, others were volunteers 
who one did cycle bicycle instruction to kids at school. That particular project, the Carly Barn, was uh, the volunteer day was on a Thursday, um, and I think in the future I'd like to have one on the on the weekend because then people who are who wouldn't have their first days free could come along. Do you think that carpentry as a craft is being lost? Um, I don't think it's being lost. I think that we are getting more and more overrun by power tools. And now um, there's AI coming along so that it's nowadays for timber framing, it's perfectly possible to just sit at a laptop um, with a, 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 you know, a, a drawing program. You can, you can do, draw up your frame, send that to a factory where pieces of wood are fed in at one end of a machine and come out the other end with all the joints cut, and then it's just delivered on site. And then two people turn up and just assemble it, or at least in theory, there may, may be a little bit of chiseling around to do. But so, and you think, well, I'm not sure that that's a craft anymore, personally. No, I mean, there is a place for that in a time of sort of housing need, but really the beauty of what you've created, and we look at our historic buildings, is the seemingly imperfections the fact that it looks a bit wobbly, but it's not imperfect. It's actually perfect because when you raise the barn, every millimetre slotted together, didn't it? All the pegs went in the holes. And so whilst it doesn't look like a, you know, all the lines being straight and you imagine following the natural form of the wood, the fact that it's a bit wavy here and there, it might not fit together well, but the opposite is true. Yeah, that's that's what's so... That's such a lovely balance between something being quite wild and expressive and, some, and then also, you know, we, we mark and cut the ends of the wood to make them fit as tenons into other mortises or whatever. And, and that bit has got an intense amount of work to make it really accurate. What happens in between is, doesn't really matter. Can I read you something from the book? Oh, do. This was a reflection about using tie beams. A tie beam stretches from one side of the building to the other and ties the tops of the two walls together. For each cross frame, a tie beam is first chosen, inspected and oriented on the trestles. One nice feature of the open truss is that the tie beams can undulate freely as they pass through space from one side of the barn to the other. The lines can follow the natural shape of the tree. Often they are whole trees, roughly squared, with one, just one good fair face, perhaps an asymmetrical curve or a hump somewhere along their lengths. On ancient frames, like George Orwell's barn that um, was made in uh, back in 1786, even the bark still remains in place after hundreds of years of use. These trees as tie beams are fascinating, beautiful objects in themselves, and they're usually the largest, longest timber in the frame. They're at the heart of it. And above all other timbers, they can retain the wildness of the woods, only slightly tamed by the marking and scribing of the framer. And I always look for a stem in the woods that will make a beautiful tie beam in an open cross frame. And in fact, um, Sam Roland Sims, who was a, a tall and very amiable young carpenter who came to be part of the teaching team, he observed, the thing that draws me in with traditional timber framing is how you never lose sight of the tree at the centre of it. The key question dealt with by the timber framer is, how do I accommodate this not so straight, often twisted and imperfectly formed tree into a structure that is upright, true and plumb? I struggle to think of a better combination of function and natural beauty than a completed timber frame. And so you worked with these volunteers and you very carefully set out what type of joints, the length of timber, these beautiful oak pegs. That was the only, the only oak, I think, in the building, wasn't it? The actual pegs? Not quite. The sill, the sole plate, um, is also oak, um, which I noticed on the traditional barns around here. And I imagine it is because it's the one place that you might get some rising damp or something like that. And the pegs are are always oak as well. Um, and it's, that's a lovely thing to make a peg. Um, in the book, I describe how to do it, but you use uh, something called a, a shave horse and a, and, a, and a tool called a draw knife, and you pick it up quite carefully, but it's, it's a completely absorbing process, um, which uh, if it was rainy or somebody wanted to just take some time out and kind of meditate, then they'd just go off and make some, make some pegs. 
Um, so even something you'd think, well, why don't we just buy them in? Because you can. But actually, you'd miss out on, on part of the process. And it goes back to that thing about craft. Well, for me, a craft is, is actually the experience of doing it as much as it is the, the finished product. In my own professional life, I work with volunteers, including Mencap, um, within a woodland in a hospital in Essex. And it wasn't so much about what we achieved, although we did achieve coppicing and planting and working with tools. It was about the doing. It was about gaining confidence with using tools perhaps for the first time in their life. They'd never used a saw before, you know, and actually thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to have a go at this. And it's so much more than the result itself, isn't it? It's about making new friends, having new skills, gaining confidence, that meditation process of being outside and doing a repetitive task. And I think also the timber frame is like a link between the woodland and all the activities you, you know very well and, and, um, and timber itself. And we've got lots of wood often in our houses, whether it's floorboards or doors or bits of furniture. But the timber frame, because it still holds a bit of the wildness of the woods, particularly in a barn, which is a kind of very sort of humble building. So um, you, you often see more twisted bits of wood in a barn than you might perhaps in a, you know, I don't know, a cathedral, let's say. But you, you just got that link between the woodland and a very simple process that can make a structure, which in a way, when it's up, some of these, uh, some of these timbers like the jowl posts with the arch braces coming out, they kind of look like a tree stem with a branch going up. It's very evocative of when you stand in a in a in a barn of of you know with the lights low of actually being kind of a, in a wood in twilight so i think the timber framing is this beautiful way of linking human sort of life and the buildings that we live in with back with the woodland and in a traditional timber frame that's done in a in a really sort of straightforward kind of a way which i think is part of for me, it's part of the discovery, working with volunteers, working with hand tools, because you had to, because they're so much safer. So when, when we're working outside, um, which we do the, the layups for the different frames on, on trestles outside, we're working outdoors. We're working outdoors pretty much in all weathers. And with the hand tools, that's not such a big deal as it might be with power tools. And, um, but it does mean that you, because you're working quietly, the, that your tools aren't making a racket that you, you can hear birdsong as you work and you you just get that constant feeling of being with with nature, which is it's just really healing, which for a lot of people who work most of their lives in offices or indoors, um, they don't have that, you know, that privilege to be able to do that. So I think I, I think that was one of the things maybe that that drew so many people to want to come and just volunteer. Is an excuse to be outside and do stuff. Honestly, it ticks so many mental health boxes. It really does. Friendship, nature, you know, being calm, being outside. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. Tell us about the day of raising the barn and what is a topping out ceremony? The barn raising day is really, you know, that's the, the big moment. That's the proof of the pudding. You've uh, probably been working for, for weeks and months beforehand checking and measuring and making every joint. And uh, I think for the Carly barn, I don't know exactly, but I think it was just about 300 pieces of wood, um, which had a, most of them had a joint at each end. So um, there was a lot of bits of wood to fit together. They've all got carpenter's marks. Yeah, they've got little numbers chiseled in. So in theory, everything is, is, is shows where it's going to end up. Um, and these are all stacked in, on the morning of, of the raising. And we had, we had just such a lovely weekend. The weather was perfect. Um, over 40 people turned up to help do the raising. And I had a, a great friend and a really experienced timber framer, is Joel Hendry, who, can, who always gets involved with the raising because he's got so much experience and we talk it through and make sure it's, everything's covered so that on the day everyone can relax, but actually it's a highly, you know, it's like a highly choreographed event. So we do it in stages and then we have a break and then we get together and discuss, let everybody know what the next thing is going to happen. And when it happens, everybody is amazed because with enough people, even a heavy piece of wood or a pre-assembled frame, because they're kind of laid flat 
and then they're raised upright and then individual bits of wood are brought in to complete it. People do it and they just can't believe how easy it is. And it's a real feeling of you get, you know, the strength of 30 or so people is phenomenal, but we very rarely experience that. So we know our own strength. And I mean, for me personally, if I had to, you know, there's a quarter of a ton tie beam or something, and I've got to try and move it around on my own. There are techniques how you can, you, you can seesaw it and swing it on trestles to move it and things. But if you've got six people there, it just makes such a difference. Um, you Suddenly things are possible just by weight of numbers, and it's nothing to do with six really strong, burly blokes. It's just six people. And we found continually that... Uh, Everybody was amazed when you get enough people to do something, how easy it makes it. And that was part of the joy of it. It's so empowering. It's like you just suddenly have this, this power that you didn't together, you know, not individually, but together that you didn't realise. It's like a metaphor for life. Together we're stronger and people use that phrase all the time, but it literally is the case in that. And so tell us about the topping out. There's a, a tradition of passing a sprig of a living tree, in this case, obviously an elm twig um and that's passed and up to the to the person who'll be on the top who will um, nail it on and this when the last piece of wood is put in place i found a healthy stem of elm leaves and brought it back to esther and handed it to her she was at one end of the long human chain and her husband bruce was high up on the roof of the barn at the other at that point in the raising we had all become part of something bigger than any of us the barn, the elm trees, the carpenters, the volunteers and the onlookers. We're all now acting together in a scene from a tradition that was coming back to life. Everyone hushed and Esther said the words that completely fitted the occasion. She thanked everyone for what they had done in whatever way and welcomed the people who over time would visit the barn in the future in the inspiration she hoped for them. It was an acknowledgement that every effort counts, that everyone matters and is valued, including people who feel they are square pegs in round holes. The elm branch was passed along the line and each person passed their thanks and joy and good wishes along with it. It made its way into the barn, up onto the platforms of the tower to Bruce. And Bruce held it aloft and everyone cheered as he nailed it to the apex of the roof. And I've never seen such a big smile as the one on Bruce's face that moment. Do you know, when I read that, it was actually really quite moving. It must have been so moving to be there after all of that work. Yes, it is. And you, you just, after, it, after that moment, and we had a bit of a tidy up and a sweep round, and then everybody was able just to walk around. And it's the first time you've been inside this big kind of towering building. Um, you, you've only been seeing it in parts, really. So for all the people who are involved, it was like finally getting to meet this building and see understand what it was all about yes it was it was incredibly moving and they're such when they just see the frame and against a bright blue sky they're just so beautiful and of course you had a party with lots of food and drink and a bit of a dance we did indeed yeah that's that's all part of it so just inside this kind of shell of a frame um we laid out a whole lot of tables and you know white tablecloths and flowers and put some lights and things around and then everybody uh, Esther had organized it all but everybody brought some food along so we had a you know just a massive meal and there was a little bit of drink flowed and yeah it was a great but everybody just felt just so amazed because sudden it seemed like suddenly here it was and there we were inside it having a lovely meal and the day before it had just been the plinth wall and nothing else to show for it so, so I think that's part of the raising is that if you've done your work right and the, and the bits all fit together and you knock you knock the pegs in and they tighten it all up then you know it it goes up incredibly quickly even just with human human hands alone um and we it's just a kind of staggering feeling really and knowing that it will be there for a couple of hundred years or whatever uh, it's just it's just such a lovely feeling for and the village to you know to know that another 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 timber frame building's gone up and that'll be there and 
Somebody will walk along the lane and point to it to their grandchildren, you know, in 40 years time or something and say, yeah, I was there that day when we did that. You recorded it so beautifully in the book and also on your website. As I say, the film is there and some, we've got some photographs that you sent us that we're going to put on our website as a slider as well so people can see. And it, it strikes me that the Barn Club is a model for life, really. Getting the community together, working outside, using resources sustainably and good woodland management and uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Robert, the elm blossom, not many people have seen it because obviously of Dutch elm disease, but it really is quite unusual and quite distinctive. So this, this is a piece of elm blossom. It's from a tree nearby. Um, it's just starting to go over really uh, February and early March is the best time. Um, it looks like Lolo Rosso lettuce. Just little tiny miniature lettuces. It's all ready green, isn't it, with florets? That's right, yeah. And they do vary in colour a lot. I mean, this one's got quite, you know, it's quite a lot of bunches, quite large bunches. And other trees have slightly different colour because there's pollen at the moment that drops out of it. I think it's already dropped from this one because it's just started to go over. Um, and that pollen's like a fine white talcum dust. And um, I think because of the storms we've had recently, all the pollen's been, <laughs> been driven from the elm trees. But I think what's nice about it, it comes out this, this like in as early as January, really, but February, depending on what particular hybrid. And the whole tree is covered with just thousands of these little florets. They're not leaves. These are These are proper flowers. And they turn then into circular seeds like little flying saucers they are they're like flat lime green discs um completely circular and they're kind of chaotically arranged on the twig aren't they they're not in a neat row they're sort of clustered in a chaotic way it looks like a modern sculpture one thing about that is when when the those seeds are out it's before it comes into leaf and actually that the, the seeds come out with that colour, distinctive colour, as you say, um, before other leaves on the other trees. So I've, I can, you know, once you've got your eye in and you can, you, you know that you're looking at the seeds, tens or even hundreds of thousands of seeds covering the crown of an elm tree, you can see them a half a mile away, um, but you can see them from great distance. And those seeds can be eaten. They make a fantastic salad. Well, I've never done that. So I shall do that next time I'm out on site. I'll be munching away. The one of the ways that I first learnt to identify an elm tree is the leaf. At the base of the leaf, um, the lower end projects more one side than the other, and I always think of that as an earlobe. That's my top tip, folks. Look for the earlobe on a leaf, and it's an elm. I write quite a bit about you know the Dutch elm disease and what elms were like, because it was the most populous tree, along with ash after um, after oak in the countryside. So this was a massively important tree in terms of a landscape and tall trees. These were big trees. And I think um, we're at the point now with the ash facing ash die back that uh, we should be thinking about um, planting, not just for climate change reasons, but you know, bringing a lot more trees back into the landscape to replace, particularly replace the ones that are now going to be lost through ash die, through ash die back as well. So there is a potential for an elm revival in the UK to be part of the rewilding movement and also the restoration of a natural landscapes more generally. Elm trees were so much part of a healthy, abundant, natural environment throughout our history that they should not be overlooked in our plans for the future. And in the context of our society's struggle against environmental loss and climate chaos, the symbolism of the elm is something grounding and earthy. It is one full of complexity and contradictions, but also a symbol of renewal, of survival against the odds and of life after tragedy. It's a tree of hope. Well, if you really want to go out on a walk, or if you're stuck on a cruise liner in New York, if it's people we can't see while in this virtual reality You may as well download an episode of Archie Lady Talks Marvellous, yes, marvellous idea Well finally, Robert, what's your dream scenario? It's really that with all these thousands or millions of trees that are going to be planted in the next uh, 
few years or decades, that we also think about what's going to happen to the wood when the trees lead, lead, reach the end of their lives. Um, because it's one thing to plant them and then you've got to look after them for perhaps many decades to come, which is the woodland management, but also what happens at the other end. And I think my dream scenario is um, we start to think again about using wood, different species of trees, perhaps for different purposes, but using those different species to the sort of maximum potential and find ways like barn club so that it's not just taking through kind of um, industrial routes, but it's taken through people, local people, being able to use their local woods and learn those crafts and skills, whether it's spoon carving with bits of willow or, or um, silver birch or something, or whether it's building timber frames for the use of their community or, or perhaps housing needs, I don't know, um, from the trees, from those woods. That would be my dream. What a great dream gets straight to the heart and it's practical and sustainable. Robert Somerville, thank you so much. I really recommend Barn Club, available from all bookshops now. And um, just take a dip into that and really get to the heart of how a craft can transform a wood, create a building and transform people's lives. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Sharon. Hit the subscribe button to guarantee you don't miss an episode and you can follow us on Twitter at the Tree Lady 67 Instagram Tree Lady Talks Facebook Sharon Hosegood Associates or send an email to noel at treeladytalks.co.uk I liked it. I liked it a lot. I think it's a great idea. I think more people should do it. I think we should do it. It's so inspirational. And I love the fact that people learnt new skills and made new friends. And of course, they had a barn dance. What more could you wish for? Yahoo! More banjo music. Next week, we're going over to New Zealand. Tell you what, I've been to the North Island. I haven't been to South Island, but I've been to the North Island. We're speaking to Sean Weaver who is the CEO of ECOS, who really look at how we can sustainably buy carbon credits. And I learn about carbon offsetting and carbon insetting and how the correct carbon woodland management can bring multiple benefits, so much more than just carbon. And I speak to John Stullen, who is from Innovatech, which is a great organisation which really promotes conferences and knowledge sharing in our industry. Okay, so uh, good, I'll, I'll look forward to that and I'll get some technical music out and uh, in the meantime it's just, uh, just time for me to say goodbye and time to her to say goodbye. Goodbye from him, bye!